Episode 35, The Far East and the Mongols. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. We've already talked about a lot of galloping hordes in this podcast, including the Goths, the Huns, and the Vikings, but there is one tribe that outstrips them all, and even outstrips the Roman Empire in terms of sheer territory conquered. In fact, this tribe conquered and ruled the largest territory in the entire history of the world. Yes, I'm talking about Genghis Khan and the Mongols. At its peak, the Mongol Empire covered 9 million square miles of territory. For comparison, the Roman Empire at its peak covered about 1.9 million square miles. The Mongols controlled 7.1 million more square miles than the Romans. The United States currently is about 3.8 million square miles. The Mongols at their peak controlled 9 million square miles. That's a lot. Okay, granted, a lot of those square miles were basically uninhabited desert, but still, the size difference is astounding. I've added a couple of maps on the website for comparison. So before we look at the story of how the Mongols came to conquer the world and then basically vanished in a quick puff of smoke, let's take a look at what's been going on in the Far East since we last talked about it. The most powerful empire in the Far East had long been China. It had been ruled by a series of different dynasties since we last looked at it, back when we were talking about what had gone on in the rest of the world while we were talking about Rome for 12 episodes. Honestly, I'm not giving China anywhere enough time in this podcast. I should give it more, because as an empire, it had been every bit as important in the East as Rome was in the West. It dominated Far Eastern politics and culture for over a thousand years. Anyway, at this time in history, while Europe was blundering around in the ends of the Dark Ages, China was having a long stretch of mostly peaceful dynasties, and it had built a stable bureaucracy that usually continued to function even when the dynasty changed, sort of like how the Roman Empire continued to function even when a Caesar was assassinated and replaced by some general from the legions. Anyway, around AD 1200, the dynasty that was ruling China was called the Song Dynasty, which is also a great name for a band, by the way. Dibs on that. The Song Dynasty. Anyway, the Song had taken over from the Han Dynasty, which was what Kylo Ren was trying to establish in the last trilogy of Star Wars. The Song Dynasty controlled most of the territory of modern China, but to the north of them, a group of squabbling nomadic tribesmen were about to come together and screw up the balance of power all over the world. To the north of China were the steppes of Mongolia. A steppe is a large grassland plain, and there are steppes in Mongolia, South Central Asia, and even some in North America. They make a great place to raise horses and cattle, and this is what the tribes of Mongolia were up to, raising horses and cattle. They also had experienced a period of nicely warm weather, kind of akin to the medieval warm period that had allowed the Vikings to go Viking all over Europe. In Mongolia, what the warm period did was to greatly increase the number of horses that the Mongol tribes had, 
And as a result, they went out Viking, or I guess mongoling? I don't know. Plundering and pillaging anyway, the same as the Vikings. They just went out on horses instead of in longboats. Warm periods of history are apparently quite dangerous in terms of getting pillaged and plundered. One of the things that had kept the Mongol tribes kind of quiet before this, besides the gold, was that they were always at war with one another. But that changed around 1200 when a Mongol general named Timujin rose to power, and by the strength of his personality and the strength of his army, he was able to unite the Mongol tribes and have himself elected as the great leader, or the Genghis Khan. As soon as he united the Mongols, they set out on their innumerable horses and they began attacking everyone around them. Genghis basically created an all-cavalry, all-horseman army with the added technological advantage that all of his horsemen were expert archers as well. Compare this with the Romans, for example. The archers were one group, the soldiers were another group, and the cavalry were a whole separate group with the Romans. And usually the foot soldiers were the most numerous. But with the Mongols, everyone was a mounted soldier, as well as an archer. And their whole army, as well as all the support people, everyone, they were all mounted. They were the fastest, most mobile army the world had ever seen. When the Mongols attacked a traditional army, what they would usually do is they'd ride up to bow and arrow range, unleash a massive barrage of arrows, and then ride off out of range again. They would then do this again, and again, and again. Then they might send some of their cavalry in to attack at close range, particularly on the flanks of the enemy. And if this managed to isolate a part of the enemy army, then the whole horde would descend upon the isolated group and completely destroy them. And they would do this again and again until the enemy army was completely broken up and destroyed. Traditional armies were utterly unprepared for this kind of hit-and-run tactic. So the Mongols basically destroyed every army that they faced, moving east across Central Asia and also south into China. Now, just as a quick side note, this is kind of what the Germans did at the beginning of World War II, using tanks and fully motorized infantry units. They got farther, faster, than the Allies ever expected they could, and they were very quickly operating behind the Allied lines, moving so fast that the Allies, well, the French mostly, couldn't even react to move their own soldiers around. The Mongols were the first to use the Blitzkrieg, but they didn't call it that. That was the Nazis. But it's an important military lesson either way. If you can move faster than your enemy, you have a huge tactical advantage the Mongols used this advantage to defeat nearly everyone that they faced. Genghis Khan also felt that he had been given the mandate by the Mongol god Tingeri to conquer the whole world, and so he aggressively expanded his empire. To the south, he conquered almost all of China. To the west, he conquered basically all of Central Asia, all the way to the Caspian Sea, and then up into what is now Russia. He apparently completely ignored the first classic blunder. I guess when your army's on horseback, it's not such a blunder. Genghis was, interestingly, a benevolent ruler over his conquered lands as long as they were peaceful and didn't resist, and they paid their tribute. If they resisted or revolted, he would send soldiers and basically exterminate the people who were resisting. This was fairly typical of the ancient and medieval world, but the Mongols were particularly ruthless about it. 
Once an area was conquered, though, he basically left it alone as long as it stayed peaceful and paid its tribute to him. The tribute consisted of money, horses, and slaves. He was particularly interested in female slaves, and he apparently had the largest harem in all of human history. It is said of Genghis Khan that he fathered so many children by so many different women that even today approximately half of a percent of all the males alive today are related to him. That's maybe 7 million current male descendants. That's the population of Houston. I know I'm somehow distantly related to William Bradford, who came over on the Mayflower, but maybe William Bradford and I are both related to Genghis Khan. He had a lot of kids. For myself, I can't keep my own kids on the task of cleaning up their own stuff, so I bet Genghis's palace was a total mess. Kids' toys, clothes, books, shoes, bows and arrows everywhere, not to mention the mess from all the pet horses. Also, Genghis Khan is responsible for one of the more aggressive battle quotes of all time. He said, The greatest happiness is to scatter your enemy, to drive him before you, and to see his cities reduced to ashes, to see those who love him shrouded in tears, and to gather into your bosom his wives and daughters. The pleasure and joy of man lies in treading down the rebel and conquering the enemy, in tearing him up by the root and taking from him all that he has. So, in Genghis's worldview, the best thing in the world was to crush your enemies. Well, okay. I guess that's kind of like the Romans, though, I guess. Anyway, the Mongols were expanding the empire, crushing their enemies, basically capturing the entire length of the Silk Road, a trade route that ran from China to the Islamic Caliphate. They conquered parts of Persia, and they were continuing to expand towards the west when Genghis died in 1227. His empire was divided into four parts, and all four parts continued to expand for a while, they also began to fight amongst each other somewhat. The Mongol Empire reached its largest extent in 1294, under Genghis's grandson, Kublai. Kublai Khan ruled the largest empire in all of human history, covering all of China and Mongolia. Korea, Tibet, Persia, southern Russia, and extending into eastern Europe. Kublai, during his lifetime, ruled from China, and he became more of a Chinese emperor than a Mongol emperor. His reign was known as a time of immense prosperity in China, and the arts and sciences flourished. But when Kublai Khan died in 1294, the Mongol Empire fell apart. It fractured into smaller warring empires, and it never again threatened its neighbors as it had under Genghis and Kublai. In fact, the Mongol Empire was almost completely gone within 50 years of Kublai Khan's death. It rose quickly, and it faded away quickly. There's a bit of a parallel here with Alexander the Great and his massive empire, but the smaller Greek empires that followed Alexander's did manage to hang on for a good while, and they left an important Greek legacy that influenced much of the Mediterranean world. But the Mongols vanished pretty quickly. They did, like the Huns, displace a lot of people who moved into southeastern Europe. And there was constant fighting in that region between the Christian kingdoms of Europe and the Muslim Ottoman Turkish Empire of Turkey in the Middle East. So while we are here visiting southeastern Europe, one of the things I want to look at in this episode, even though it's a bit out of the timeline, is the story of Dracula. I wanted to talk about him just because I think he's super interesting, and I couldn't see a better place to fit him in. Plus, we're about to 
begin to move out of the Dark Ages, and Vlad Dracula's story is much more of a Dark Ages story than it is a Renaissance story. So we're jumping forward about 200 years, which is basically not that much in our timeline. So we're jumping forward to the 1400s. In southeastern Europe, in what is now Romania, was the small kingdom of Wallachia. To the south, Wallachia was bordered by the Ottoman Turks, who they were constantly fighting. To the north was the kingdom of Hungary, which wanted to rule over Wallachia. In between was the region that's known as Transylvania, but Wallachia was actually south and east of Transylvania. The reason that Dracula is associated with Transylvania is that's how the region was described in the book by Bram Stoker. And that's actually kind of appropriate because Transylvania was kind of a general region, but Wallachia was itself an actually a kingdom or a principality anyway. So Vlad Dracula was the son of Vlad Dracul, which means Vlad the dragon. Vlad Dracula sort of means Vlad the son of the dragon, also a pretty cool nickname. While his dad was the prince of Wallachia, Vlad and his younger brother Radu were given to the Ottoman Sultan as hostages in order to guarantee the loyalty of Wallachia after the Sultan had agreed not to invade. So Vlad spent a good part of his youth in the court of the Turkish Sultan. He apparently hated it there. While he was living in the Ottoman Empire, there was a lot of intrigue between Hungary and the rulers of Wallachia, including Vlad's father and one of his half-brothers plotting to take over the throne and the Hungarian king trying to assist them. Sometime around 1456, Vlad was released by the Sultan, and he took power himself in Wallachia. He captured some of the aristocrats from the other provinces who resisted him, and he had them killed. Then he raided some Saxon villages to the north of Wallachia, who were also resisting him, and some of the captives from those villages were taken outside the village and impaled on long spikes, and then the spikes were hoisted up from the ground like a pole, with the bodies still on them as a warning to others. So those poles stood there outside the villages with bodies impaled on them. It's kind of gruesome. This is how Vlad gained his nickname, Vlad the Impaler. So now that he was the ruler of Wallachia, the Ottoman Sultan, whose name was Mehmed II, he sent two envoys to Vlad to order Vlad to pay him tribute. Vlad had the envoys impaled as well. Then he invaded Ottoman territory, and apparently he captured and killed tens of thousands of Turks, impaling many of them. So the Sultan sent a bigger army, and he drove Vlad all the way out of Wallachia. Vlad went up to Hungary to the Hungarian king to ask for help, but instead he was imprisoned for eight years. Then he was released, and he fought in the Hungarian army, again fighting against the Turks. He tried to raise his own army to take back the Wallachian throne, but he eventually died in battle in 1477. The stories of his cruelty and the sheer number of people that he had impaled made him sort of an infamous anti-hero in Eastern Europe. There were already some stories that implied that he gained some kind of mystical powers from all of his evil acts well before the book Dracula was written. Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula in 1897, 400-some years after Vlad Dracula's death, basically cobbled together several different Eastern European spooky folk tales, including stories about bats, people who couldn't die, various hauntings, and he pulled them all together into a single tale, using the name of the infamous ruler to be his undead count, Count Dracula. 
He also chose to set the story in Transylvania because, let's face it, that's just a spookier place name than Wallachia, which sounds like it's a friendly little country next door to Genovia or Belgravia. Also, as I said, Transylvania was the name of the region, and that regional name was still in use in Bram Stoker's day, though the kingdom of Wallachia was long gone by that time. It would be super interesting to me to review all the spooky and odd fairy tales of Europe and to take a deeper dive into stories like Little Red Riding Hood, for example. In the original version, she gets eaten by the wolf, but then she gets cut out of the wolf's stomach by the woodsman. A lot of the original versions of these old fairy tales are pretty gruesome. We've got no time for all that, though. Maybe in some other podcast, some other time. In this one, we just have time for a short side trip to visit Count Dracula, partly because he's based on a real person, sort of, and that person really lived in the late Dark Ages of Europe, and partly because it's almost Halloween and it just seemed seasonal. But now, we're about to leave the Dark Ages of Europe, as a couple of big things start happening sort of simultaneously that will turn the lights back on. Next episode, we're going to look at the beginnings of Europe sending out explorers to trade with the rest of the world and bringing back some of the forgotten knowledge that had been lost during the Dark Ages. And it all starts with one Italian explorer who wandered all the way to China and wrote a very influential book about his travels. He's a hard guy to find now, but you might find him in the nearest pool. Marco! Marco!